Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Breakfast today is sponsored in loving memory of Jack Adria. Sponsored by the Ajmi family. Breakfast is also sponsored by Stephen Rapport in honor of Mrs. Lily Safra. Thank you for everything you have done and continue to do. Thank you, Stevie. The Pasuk tells us uh, when a person has an obligation to keep the Shemitah, they work the land for six years, and in the seventh year they have to let the land lie fallow. And if you will say, what will we eat in the seventh year? Because if in the seventh year you're not planting, what are you going to eat in the, in the eighth year, in the ninth year, etc.? Because remember, if in the seventh year you're planting, so when do you uh, reap the benefits of that? You reap it in the next year. In the seventh year, you're eating from the sixth year. So really the problem is the year after that. If you're going to say, So then the Pasuk says, Then I will command my Beracha, and you will have, you'll be able to, uh, to bring in enough food. The land will give its bounty. And you will eat for all the next years. You will do Tivuah for three years. Ask the Sephorno amongst many, many other Mefarshim. That's a very strange sequence of events. If in the, a person keeps Shemitah and they don't uh, plant and they don't do the plowing, they don't do all the extra things, the pruning of the trees, etc., etc., if they're not pushing themselves to do all these things in the seventh year because they're letting the land lie and they're leaving it Shabbat Lashem, a, a, a sabbatical for God, if that's what they're doing. So why does the Pasuk say, and if you will say, what are we going to eat? Then Hashem will give you Berachah. It's almost as if the secret words are, what are we going to eat? And then the land produces the, you know, all the, all the, uh, the extra fruits and the vegetables and the, and, the, and the fruits of the trees. What are we talking about? So the Sephona, amongst others, says a magnificent idea. He says, actually, we're reading the Pasuk and we're reading the occurrences in our lives exactly wrong and in the parallel opposite of the way the Torah actually meant it. What the Torah means to say is that if a person doesn't ask a single question, if they plant uh, uh, six years and the seventh year, they leave it alone, they just do, they fulfill the mitzvah the way it's supposed to be fulfilled, then the halach, then the, the berachah comes to a person in, a, in the easiest of ways. But when you ask, how, what are we going to eat from? Where's the parnasah going to come from? The question itself, if you will, that doubt that is aroused in a person's heart requires that the beracha of God, the blessing that God gives him in his life, is depicted in a way where he needs now to bring in enough food for three years in one year. Now, when that happens, the, the work and the toil and the effort that that requires from a person and from the land is very extreme. But if the person doesn't ask it, then God has many ways of giving a person what he needs. There's a fascinating expression that we have, already starting by Abraham Avinu. It says that when Sarah baked the bread, then the bread was mitbarech bime'ehem, they was blessed in their stomachs. A little bit of food went a very long way. A person felt very full. I don't know, I like to eat. I think some of you would, uh, can join me in that, uh, in that expression. But you now sometimes you eat two, three bites, and you, can't, you don't feel like, you feel like you're shoving it down your throat. And sometimes you can eat and eat and eat and still you feel hungry. Even after you went and spent $200 in a nice fancy restaurant, you still want to eat more. You know, it only takes the $60 thing on the menu to kind of turn you that uh, 
quiets your hunger. So there's a time when a person can eat something and it, 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 it uh, fills them up and the person feels full. And there's times when it's not enough. Rabotai, when a person asks the questions in emunah, Hashem says, I'm still going to give you beracha. I'm going to bless you for your emunah that you didn't work. But the questions, they cost us. There's a price to the question. Hashem says, you want to know how? No problem. Here, I'm going to give you how. I want to share with you something which I found was a remarkable idea. The Pasuk tells us, sorry, the, uh, the Gemara tells us that there was one of the terrible times that is associated with the, uh, the time of the, of the uh, uh, Khurban Bayit when Am Yisrael was witnessing the seven, excuse me, the Asara Rugem Malchut, they were being destroyed. Each one of them was a bigger Gaon, bigger Gadol than the next one, and they were being killed because of the sins of Am Yisrael. Comes the, the, the speci- one of the specific uh, murders in the Gemara. The Gemara tells us that the, they looked at the, at, the, at the death and they said, how could it be? How could it be, the people asked. The Malachim asked. How could it be? Zu Torah vizu sechara. Is this the Torah and is this its reward? HaKadosh Baruch Hu's answer is enigmatic. God says, you have to be quiet. This is my decree. You have no permission to wonder after my ways. If you say anything else, I will return the entire world to Tov Avo. I'll return the world to uh, the, nether, the, the, the lack of existence that it had before I created it. So the Mifarshim ask, what is God? He's throwing a temper tantrum. The people are suffering. They're asking a question. How could such a thing happen? The answer is, you tell them, if you ask any more questions, I'm going to destroy the world. The, the Vilna Gaon, I believe, uh, was the one that expressed it the, the most uh, the, the, in this manner. And he said as follows. He said that what HaKadosh Baruch Hu was saying was not a punishment. He gives a mashal. He says, imagine someone was hired by the king of a land. And he was hired to make the most beautiful garments for the king that no one else in the world would have. Made from a very specific uh, silk. You know, no one could obtain it and that way the king would feel unique and elevated above everybody else because he had this wonderful, expensive uh, garment. They make the garment and he brings it to the king and it fits him like a glove and he feels like it's a million dollars. Of course, as the king is piling praise upon praise on the guy's head, the people start getting a little bit nervous in the court. They think that he's going to maybe elevate the tailor above one of them. And the intrigue in the court knows no bounds. Everybody's jealous of everybody else. So they said, you know, your majesty, you're giving him so much praise. But this is the special cloth that you made for yourself. It's true he made you a beautiful one. But you know what? Odds are that he probably took the same material, whatever was left over, and he made for someone else also a suit. He made for someone else also a cape. You know, how do you know that this guy, he let, used every bit of the material for you? And the king, he, you know, once that was planted in his brain, he couldn't get it out. He calls the man and he says, uh, Taylor, he says, yes. He says, did you use all the material I gave you in this gown, in this uh, uh, um, clothing? He says, yes, I did. You, that's what you told me to do. He says, how do I know I could trust you? Maybe I'm going to go to a ball with all the other nobles, and I'll be humiliated. How do I know I can trust you? The tailor thinks about it for a minute. He says, the truth is, 
There's no way for me to prove it to you. The king says, well, if you can't prove it to me, I'm going to execute you. Things escalate very quickly in the court. Right? The tailor says, okay, I have a solution, but you're not going to like it. The king says, whatever it is, you do it, because if you can't do it, then I can't believe you. And if I can't believe you, then you're going to lose your head. The tailor reaches into his bag, and he takes out a, uh, a razor blade. And the king says, what are you doing? He says, the gown, the clothing, everything that I made for you. He says, I'm going to cut it all apart, open up all the stitching, take out all the folds, take out the hems, take out the collar, and then I'll lay it out in front of you, and you could measure it, and you'll see that every single drop that's there is still there. And I didn't use one extra drop for anybody else because it will all be here. But you're not going to like it because that's going to mean that I'm taking apart this beautiful piece of clothing that I made for you, that you commissioned me to do, that fits you perfectly. Says it on, when God said to the Jews, this is the decree, when the people had sinned, when everybody had all the various things going on behind closed doors, nobody knew how people were acting and how people were reacting one to the other. God, nobody knew the hatred that one Jew had for another in his heart. The only person that knew the true bill was God in heaven. God said, this is the bill. We came to God and said, It's like when you call the waiter over and you say, I'm so sorry, I don't think we ordered this. You know, there's an extra charge on the bill here. I don't think this is from our party. You know, we didn't have French fries. God says, if you ask me any more questions, you don't understand my rules, my laws, no problem. I have a solution, but you're not going to like it. Let me take the world apart and go back to the beginning of history. Take you through every single story that happened since the beginning of time. And you'll see that there's not a cent here that is out of place. Boreo Lam says, those, you have questions for me? No problem. Like Radio Shack. You've got questions? We've got answers. But the questions cost us. When we don't have questions and we put our faith in God. How praiseworthy is the man who places his trust in God. When a person does that and they know that Hashem will take care of them and they're not asking how and when and by what date and what time, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu's blessing is much greater. We're allowed to ask whatever questions we want, but there's a price. Rabotai, I wanted to end with one last nekuda, which I thought was a very powerful idea. You know, there's a gentleman, and the story I'm sure is a legend, I'm sure is apocryphal, but it teaches us a tremendous lesson. There was a man who... Uh, his business was doing very, very well. He decided to expand the business to be able to ramp up the production. Business is good. That day, he turns up at work. He realizes that he miscalculated. And although he's spent all this money on expanding the building, he now has all these orders in that he thought he could fill, but he doesn't have enough money for the product to be able to go make the stuff. He goes from bank to bank. The bank said, sorry, sir. We already lent you. You told us this is what you needed. You showed us your business plan. We thought that was a good deal. Now you're coming back asking for more. We don't really, we don't trust you anymore. The guy can't get a loan. So he goes from the top of the world, expanding his warehouse, his operation, to the bottom of the heap. He, he can't pay his bills. He knows in 30 days, they're going to come, shut down his brand new factory, take all the machines, sell them for below cost. He'll be struggling to get out of bankruptcy for the rest of his life. The guy is thinking maybe of ending his whole life. 
He goes for a walk in Manhattan, and you know, he thinks to himself, you know what, I'm so stressed out. Maybe it's a good idea I'll go to Central Park. He walks in on, in the park and he sees a bench. He sits down and he starts crying. All of a sudden he feels a person puts his hand on his shoulder. He says, young man, what's going on? And the guy says, leave me alone. I don't want to talk. He says, young man, please, why don't you tell me? Maybe I can help. He says, nobody can help. He looks at this old guy. He sees him sitting there. He says, what are you going to do for me? He says, what's the problem? He tells him the whole problem. He pours his heart out. The man says, listen, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. All I can tell you is this. From my experience, the nature of business is such that a person has ups and they have downs. He says, I want to give you something. I'm going to give you a check. He takes out a check. He writes him a check. He says, I want you to use this money. Come back to me in this bench in one year's time and you'll see that I'm right and you're wrong. That if you have a good product and you have a good work ethic, you can make anything happen. This is going to work out for you. He gives him a check. The guy can't believe his eyes, can't believe his ears. As the man walks away, he looks down at the check. The check is for half a million dollars. Signed on the check is the name Rockefeller. The guy can't believe it. He looks up. He sees the Rockefeller building, you know, just down the road. He imagines all of the things that this guy must have gone through to be able to set up his business and his children for the rest of his life. And he thinks to himself, you know what, if after telling him about my business and about my numbers, this guy believes I could still dig myself out, you know what, I got, the least I could do is try. He takes the check, he walks into the building, into the bank again, and he says, look, I have a check here. I don't want to cash it, but I will if I need to. But look, look who's backing me. They look at the signature, they recognize the signature, says Rockefeller on it. They said, wow, you've got someone like that backing you. Look, we can't give you everything you're asking, but we'll give you a little bit. The guy says, you know what, I'll, I'll take it. He keeps the check in his desk every morning when he comes into work. He opens, this is before he starts work, he looks at the check, he closes the drawer. He makes that money, he stretches it. He works double as hard. He cuts his margin, his profit margins to the bare minimum. Everything in order to just fulfill his orders for that season. And you know what? By the skin of his teeth, he makes it. Everyone in the company sees that the boss doesn't leave in the morning, doesn't leave at night, and they all also work overtime. They don't want to lose their jobs either. Everybody gives extra. Everybody accepts a little bit of a pay reduction. They make that season, and by the time they get the money in, they're capable of ramping up production even more than he thought that it was possible for the beginning of the year. One year to the day, the guy comes back. He's got the check in his hand that he's looked at every day that saved his life. He wants to hand it back to Mr. Rockefeller and show him, I didn't even cash the check. But thank you, because it was your belief and your emunah in me that allowed me to pursue my dreams in the way that I knew that I was capable of. He's got the check, he's got his best suit on, his best tie. He's at the bench, not at the same time as last time, three hours earlier preparing the words that he's gonna say to this elderly gentleman. Anyway, as if on clockwork, exactly at the same time he met him, 8 a.m., he sees the gentleman walking down, dapper old man walking towards him, and he sits down on the bench, and he says to him, sir, I don't know how I could thank you. I don't know what I could say. Anyway, while he's talking to him, and he wants to give him this big long speech about the check, and give it to him in this big ceremony that he's got planned in his head, 
all of a sudden, two men walk up to them and they say, excuse me, sir, please stop talking. He says, no, no, I have, I have permission. He says, it's not about permission, sir. You're not family. You're not next of kin. You have no, no place speaking to our patient. The guy says, what are you talking about? They said, unfortunately, this man, he's sitting with us. He lives in the mental hospital. He walks around every day, and quite often he wanders away from where he's supposed to be. He has a habit of telling people that he's John Rockefeller. The guy, he has his hand on the check, he's about to pull it out. He's now humiliated, he doesn't want them to think that he bought this guy's story. He pushes the check further in his pocket, <laughs> and he says, okay, no problem, and he walks away. I always loved this story, and I'm sure it's not true. But what a mashal it is. He didn't even need to cash the check, Rabotai. All he needed to know was that in his brain, this guy Rockefeller trusted him, relied on him, thought that he was worthy of investing in. If he had that, he had everything. You know what would have happened if when he got the check, he would have asked a million questions? How come you're doing this? Where are you coming from? You know what? It's so interesting. It doesn't say the exact name at the top of the check. You know, where should I mail it to? It would have been revealed that that check actually wasn't for him. And he didn't deserve it. And it wasn't the gentleman that said on the check, Rabotai, our emunah is like that too. If God gave you a day today, God gave you a check. He said, here, give it back to me later. Go spend it wisely. I trust you. I'm sure you're going to do something good with it. When a person looks at God's trust in them, like, the, like we say in the morning, your faith in us is great because you keep investing even though we keep losing the money. You keep telling us to wake up again and go, go forward. When a person looks at the fact that no one, no one like Rockefeller, not Rothschild, not Batik, God himself says, I believe in you. When a person feels that, then you don't experience what am I going to eat? How am I going to make it happen? You know what you do? You put your head down, you work hard, you trust in God, and you make it happen. May God bless us through our emunah to experience unbelievable berachot, yeshuot v'nechamot.